people do before Google? Like for answers to your most burning questions. What do people do? I mean, if encyclopedia, did you guys remember having encyclopedias? Encyclopedia Britannica? Yeah, all about Britain, apparently, in the Britannica. Uh, if you're married to me, you can just ask me because I know everything, at least. Oh, come on now, it's a joke and you know it. Have you ever had like a burning question on your mind, like something just pops up in conversation, like I gotta have the answer to this question, you just pop your phone open and you Google it? Okay, I want you to know what I Googled this week, ready? What makes a meatball Swedish? Have you ever had a Swedish meatball, anybody? Have you ever had a Swedish meatball? What makes them Swedish? I don't know. I do now, because I Googled it. The answer to this, and lots of other burning questions in this morning's sermon, let's pray together. God, thank you for the opportunity to laugh together, to be together, to worship together, to um, turn around, shake hands, and say hello this morning. God, teach us what it means to be the church, to be your followers. Uh, encourage, exhort, comfort, and bring hope and joy and healing this morning as we look into your word together in the name of Christ, the people of God, with enthusiasm said. Amen. Uh, I want to walk you through a little bit of conversation that our pastoral staff and our elders have been having over the last couple of years. We've been talking about who we are as a church and what we do. Uh, we're talking about why we exist. We've been talking about our mission, our vision, and our values. And over the course of that conversation, one of our staff members said, well, I wonder, like, if you Googled, like, you know, Apple or, you know, Pepsi or whatever, what is their mission statement? What do they do? What widget did they make? And one of the things that we Googled was Ikea. And we asked ourselves, what widget or widgets does Ikea make? And other than inexpensive furniture, relatively inexpensive furniture that won't cost you that much money-wise, but will cost you nine years off your life to put it together because it's just impossible. Have you been to the Ikea before? Why are there no exits there? You're, you've been in Ikea, you're just looking for an exit for the better part of three hours? Like, I have no idea how to get out of this place. I feel like I'm in a casino. I'm trapped here. Like, this is crazy, right? Never been to a casino, by the way. <laughs> no, Okay. Beside the point, one of the widgets that Ikea makes, other than inexpensive furniture, is Swedish meatballs. This is weird to me that they make Swedish meatballs, but they do. You can go into Ikea and you can get a Swedish meatball. That is one of the widgets that Ikea makes. So we asked the question, if Ikea makes Swedish meatballs, among other things, what widget do we make? What widget do we make? As a church, not bricks and mortar and, you know, the chairs and the things, but as people, what are we trying to do here? What are we trying to produce? And it might sound like a really crass kind of base question, but it's not because Jesus tells us the answer to the question in Matthew chapter 28. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make what? Disciples. So what widget do we make? We make disciples. That's what we're here to do. And, and I know it's kind of a $2 church word, and we could try to wrap kind of different language around it, but sometimes when you're in a new space, you've got to learn a new language. And one of the things that we need to learn is this word, disciples, because Jesus wants us to understand discipleship. And for those very first followers of Jesus, those he called as his disciples, capital D, he called them, and they understood that they were his Talmudim. Talmudim <coughs> were just followers of a rabbi. 
a teacher. And Jesus was their rabbi. Jesus was their teacher. And as Talmudim, they understood that their role was to follow Jesus around and just become like him. Do what he does. Love what he loves. Say what he says. Be silent when he's silent. And what we said last week is the Talmudim are really unique because students want to learn from a teacher, but Talmudim want to be the rabbi. This is not just about information that they're receiving from Jesus. It's about becoming like him in his character, as Paul would say, becoming like him in his death and in the power of his resurrection in every way possible. I want to become like Jesus. I want to be a disciple. What makes a meatball Swedish? Well, you know what it is? According to Google, it's the gravy. Now, I had somebody come up to me after the first service who loves Swedish meatballs. He's an elder. He's a good friend. I had breakfast with him this, this week. And he said, you know what? There's a few other things that make a meatball Swedish. I said, that's not the point, Al. Okay? That's not the point. The point is, Google says, and I'm not going to tell you his name, but um, Google says what makes a meatball Swedish is the gravy. So here's my question. If we are here to make disciples, that's the widget we make, what makes a person a disciple? What, what makes that type of individual unique, as somebody who follows Jesus? And this is a complicated question in this day and age. It really is. Why? Because we don't have a rabbi walking around on the planet now that we can just go after him and follow him and listen to him and learn what he wants to teach us and become like him. And neither did the early church. Jesus had died, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. And so what they did was they learned to become Jesus Talmudim, his disciples, by these postures and practices that they engaged in in their day-to-day life. And the great news is that a guy named Luke recorded those postures and practices in a book called Acts. So if you have your Bible, open them up to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is in the New Testament. It's probably going to be three-quarters of the way through your Bible, give or take. In my Bible, it's page 796, but uh, it doesn't matter in your Bible. It could be any number of different pages. And remember, the book of Acts is the history of the early church. It's short for Acts of the Apostles. What happened after Jesus ascended into heaven? What do those apostles do? What, what is it that they engaged in? What was their mission? And Luke begins to record that. And one of the things that he records for us there <coughs> is these early followers of Jesus, these early Talmudim, these early followers of the way, even before they were called Christians, what is it that they did in order to become the rabbi, become like the rabbi, even when the rabbi was no longer on the planet, already ascended into heaven? And what Luke tells us in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, he answers our question, what makes a person a disciple? And here's what set the early church apart, those early followers of the way. Here's what made them Talmudim, disciples, followers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the scripture, to the fellowship, being together, to the breaking of bread, having meals together, and communion, which we just did, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had everything in common. And they were selling their possessions and goods and belongings and distributing them to the proceeds to all as any had need. Luke would go on to tell us that there were no poor or needy among them, believe it or not. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
So if we ask this question, what makes a person a disciple, what we could do is just restate Acts 2, verses 42 through 46, and say, this is what makes a person a disciple. <coughs> this is what makes a person a, a, a follower of Jesus. These are the postures and practices that we engage in in order to make us more like Jesus. And what we've done as a staff and as an elder team is boiled those postures and practices down to four Ds, four statements that start with the letter D because we're preachers and we alliterate and that's what we do. But we also want them to be really memorable. Why? Because these four statements, these four postures of the heart and practices that we engage in will become the groundwork, the, the, the foundation for everything that we do here at Bayview Glen Church. For our life groups, for our serve teams, for our kids ministry, for Alpha, for outreach, for missions, for our corporate worship, all that we do, what we're trying to do is together engage in these postures and practices, these four D's, so that we become like the rabbi. So here's the deal, especially if you call this place home, you need to jot this one down because this morning we're talking about just the first one and it's discovering a life connected to God and others. Disciples of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus are always discovering a life connected to God and others. I'm going to show you why that's true from Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 46. And this is where we're going to camp out for the next several weeks as we unpack one of these statements at a time over the next three or four weeks. But today we're just talking about this, discovering a life connected to God and others. And we've chosen this word discovering specifically. We chose the tense of that verb on purpose. Mm. Because you have never discovered a life connected to God and others. That's called heaven, right? That's the other side of glory. But all of us, whether you've been walking with Jesus for 50 years, or whether you've not even made a commitment of faith yet, whether you're just learning about his grace, we're all discovering together. We're all on a journey together, always learning, always growing what it means to be connected to God and connected to others. And what I want to do this morning is change this statement into a commitment. And it's not an I am statement because that's way too individualistic. And discipleship is not an individualistic endeavor. It's very much a community endeavor. We are together discovering a life connected to God and others. That's what we are. That's who we are. His church, his people, his Talmudim in this day and age, we are together discovering a life connected to God and others. So I want to say this together as a body twice, and then I want to show you from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 46, why this principle and practice is so critical for a follower of Christ. So would you join me in saying this together? We are discovering a life connected to God and others. So good. Say it one more time. We are... Amazing. So here's the deal. We'll unpack it piece by piece. First, we're discovering a life connected to God. We're discovering a life connected to God. Why? Because one of the consequences of our rebellion from God, running away from him, is a disconnection from him. So we've got a disconnection problem. We see this in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, uh, when first man and first woman first ran away from God, rebelled, rejected his plan. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife 
hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden, which I always think this is funny because we hear God coming, quick, hide in the trees. Apparently sin makes you stupid too. Like God created those trees and you, he can see through stuff. You're not going to hide from him. But what people typically say is, okay, we, we sinned, and then God banished original man and original woman from the garden, and they became disconnected from him. But that happens after this moment. Watch what happens. They have hid themselves from the presence of God. That's their choice. They ran away. Yes, it's a consequence of their sin that God uh, that God chose to inflict, or as Andy would say, choice to, because he said that a minute ago, choice, um, uh, cho- cho- chose for them, but it's also a choice that they made to hide themselves from God. But look what God does in his grace. What does he do? He called out to the man. You see God already seeking those who have been disconnected from him? God already going after, God already pursuing, God already calling out to And we see this separation between God and mankind, between humanity and God, this disconnection. We see it throughout the scripture, and we always see God engaging in (coughs) reconnecting with human beings. In fact, as the nation of Israel grew, one of the things that God did as his people grew is he established what's called a tabernacle. It was like a mobile tent that went around with the nation of Israel as they kind of wandered around, and God dwelt in the tabernacle. His presence was in that tabernacle, in that tent of meeting as the nation of Israel moved. But fast forward to when Jesus comes around, John tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word here is tabernacled. Jesus tabernacled among us. Why? Because whether it's Old Testament or New, whether it's then or now or in the future, God is always establishing or reestablishing connection with mankind, whereas we were once disconnected. Same thing happens with the temple when God established a more permanent home for himself and his Shekinah glory, his saturated, almost palpable presence dwelt in the most holy place in the temple. And the nation of Israel would come and worship at the temple and they would come and call on God together and sacrifice to God. But the most holy place where God dwelt, where God was, could only be entered by one person, the high priest, and only one time a year. And the high priest would have to sacrifice for himself and then on behalf of the people to deal with the sin that had so disconnected them from God before he entered into that most holy place. And the most holy place was shut off from all the rest of people. They couldn't enter into where God dwelt because God was so holy and they had been disconnected from him. And it was shut off by a curtain, a very, very thick veil. This is why Matthew tells us in chapter 27 that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. He died and behold what? The curtain of the temple was torn in two. So now access to God is available. Now we can reconnect him. Now our disconnection problem is solved in totality in Christ because of his shed blood, because of his body given for us, because he came to inaugurate a kingdom. And so in Acts chapter 2, what we see now that Jesus has ascended into heaven is no longer on the planet. What we've got here is that uh, the disciples, these early Talmudim, are seeking God in prayer. They're, <coughs> they're listening to teaching. They're attending worship together. They received communion. They praised God. 
Why? Because they're seeking to reconnect to him. They're engaging in postures and practices so that they discover a life connected to God. It's so funny to me how Christians sometimes, these things become like chores that we do, you know? It becomes like, you know, why do you go to church? Well, because I'm a Christian and I have to go to church. Mm. Why do you pray? Well, it's expected of me. The Bible commands me to pray, so I follow that commandment. Okay, sure, that's great. Why does the Bible command that? Because it's an opportunity to connect to God. It's an opportunity to talk to Him, to listen to Him, to engage What the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 46, is that they dedicated themselves to prayer, to the apostles' teaching, which you're listening to right now, not to an apostle, but I'm talking about the apostles' teaching, right? They they attended worship together so that they could, it's not just about singing songs, it's about connecting with God in a unique and special way. They received communion together, reminding themselves of the good news of Jesus. They praised God all because those things help us to reconnect to God through Jesus. That's what disciples do. They're always discovering a life connected to God. Second, disciples, Talmudim, are always discovering a life connected to others. To others. And for some of you introverts, you're thinking, oh no, this is the worst sermon I've ever been to in my life. But this is part and parcel what it means to be a disciple of Christ, that you are connected to other people. Why? Because originally we were designed for connection. Originally we were designed for fellowship and relationship. And when sin entered into the picture, when we rebelled from God, it fractured the relationships that we have with one another. How? Well, Genesis 3 will tell us. When original man, original wan and woman, is what I was about to say, it's because I made fun of Andy, right? Instead of man and woman, I said wan and woman. That's not right at all. And I think God is punishing me, but that's beside the point. Um, what happened is, original man, original woman rebelled from God. Then, then, the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and what? Made themselves loincloths. Who are they hiding from here? Not God, one another, right? I don't want to disclose who I really am. I'm, I'm ashamed. I understand that something uh, about me is broken. I don't feel quite right. This is awkward. I, 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 have, to, I have to hide myself from you. And, and that disconnection began with original rebellion. And the disconnection continues as we see the scripture unfold over the next uh, number of chapters up till Genesis chapter 11, but even uh, through the rest of scripture. Namely, in a story called the Tower of Babel. But, but before we get there, I want to tell you what God commanded Adam and Eve, because this is so critical. He commanded original man and original woman, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. This is not a heavy-handed command, by the way. Have sex, make babies. That's like not, that's, that's not like the worst thing ever, Right? Okay, and fill the earth. What are they supposed to do? Fill the earth, right? Say it with me again. What are they supposed to do? Fill the earth. Then in Genesis chapter 9, when Noah and his family survived the flood, God tells them the same thing. Be fruitful, multiply, and do what? Say it with me. Fill the earth. You're supposed to be my vice regents. You're supposed to go everywhere in the earth. You're supposed to create culture. You're supposed to subdue the earth. Fill the earth. But when Noah's descendants, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, began to have children, those descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth made a really bad choice. What they said is, 
Come, let us build a tower, uh, uh, build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We got two problems here. One, let us build a tower to make a name for ourselves. This is a bad choice. Number two, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, you may have heard this said before. You had one job. Have you heard that before? You had one job. What was it? We just repeated it. What was it? Fill the earth. And what are they doing? They're doing exactly what God told them not to do. Instead of filling the earth, we, lest we be dispersed, let's not fill the earth. Let's all gather together. Let's not be his vice regents. Let's all get, kind of get in this little cohort and not do what God told us to do. This is a bad idea. So the Lord came down. And to see the city and the tower, which the children of, God, children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. Mm. They have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Listen, God is not scared. He's not worried. Oh, my gosh, they're all going to rally together, and they're going to dethrone me. He's not worried about that. What he's saying is they're not doing what I told them to do. So what does he do? He says, come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. In other words, now, <clears throat> whereas they were gathered together and doing exactly what God told them not to do, God confused their language, so disconnection from one another. They weren't able to relate to one another. They weren't able to talk to one another. They weren't able to get in one another's lives, and they became dispersed over the whole earth. Therefore, the scripture says, the name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the whole earth, which is exactly what he told them to do in the first place. We just said a lot there, but here's what I want you to know, that the consequence of their sin was disconnection from one another. Did you see it? They wanted to build a tower for themselves, bring glory to themselves, and the consequence of that sin was God confusing their language so they, they were not able to interact with one another. The consequence of their sin, just like original man and original woman, just like you and me, becomes disconnection from one another. Now, if you rewind one chapter, Genesis chapter 10 tells us the result of Genesis chapter 11. I know 10 comes before 11, but the Bible is not always in chronological order. And in Genesis chapter 10, what it tells us is the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It tells us where they ended up and what nations ended up coming from those descendants and what language. Now, <coughs> if you were to go home and read Genesis chapter 10, you would think that's the most boring chapter in the Bible that I've ever read. It really is. It's the like Malachites and the Hammerites and the cheeseites and the Swedish meatballites and all kinds of different stuff. And you're going, why is this even here? This is, I mean, this just seems like superfluous. And why would God put that in? You know what? He's got a purpose for everything he put in there. You want to see it? You want to see why God put that in there? Look up here on the screen. This is a map of where all those nations ended up, where all those different languages ended up. We could read it in Genesis chapter 10, and we know from history where they ended up all over the known world at the time, all, even as far north over here as Timmins, way over there where nobody was from. Timmins? Nobody got that? Nobody liked that joke? People got to stick with me this morning. All right, so this is the map, okay? So I want you to plant this in your mind. 
The Tower of Babel, when man rebelled from God, the consequence of their sin was disconnection, and here's where they were dispersed to. Got it? Now fast forward to Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 1 at Pentecost, where Jesus has ascended into heaven. He sends his spirit on his disciples. The disciples begin to preach in many tongues, and these are the folks that hear the good news about Jesus in their own language. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, people from Timmins, we hear them telling our own tongues in the mighty works of God. Why in the world would Luke name all these regions? One, God inspired him to. Two, why did God inspire him to? Check out a map. This is where those nations came from in Acts chapter 2. If you take this map and overlay it over the top of the map from Genesis chapter 10, they're almost identical. Can you believe that? Man, I'm going to say that one more time. If you take this map, what was united at Pentecost when people came together under the common Lord Christ and said, we are his followers, we are followers of the way, we are going to, despite our cultural differences, despite our linguistic differences, God empowered his disciples to communicate the good news about Jesus so that they could be united together and rediscover connection with one another. You take this map and put it over the top of the Tower of Babel, it's almost identical where those regions or where those people groups come from. Why? Because what was the consequence of sin at the Tower of Babel, disconnection from one another, God solves completely, totally in Christ and us finding reconnection. Despite language differences, despite age differences, despite socioeconomic differences. And so the early church understood that God has now empowered them. The Spirit has empowered them. God has called them to rediscover connection with one another. So what did they do? Well, they fellowshiped together, is what we read in Acts 2.42 uh, 2, 2, through 46. They worshiped together at the temple. They gathered together in one another's homes and had table together. They ate together. <coughs> they met needs. Luke would go on to say there was not a poor person or a needy person among them. Not only that, but verse 47 tells us that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So they had an outward focus. Not only did they find unity in Christ together, but their community, their fellowship had wide arms, a wide embrace. It said, all are welcome. Not only that, but we go find, we go after, we go make disciples to anyone and everyone scattered throughout the Roman world. This is why unity in the body of Christ becomes such a critical theme throughout the rest of the New Testament because God's design in Christ is that his disciples, his followers, and if this is you, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, connection with other people in the body and outside of the body is part and parcel what it means to be a disciple. This is why it becomes such a theme in the rest of the New Testament. Galatians 3, Paul says that there is no Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What is he saying? There's no more gender, there's no more ethnicity? No. It's that the trump card of Jesus trumps all of that so that we're all on equal playing field so that we can be united under the flag of Christ. 
I, I had a friend that would go so far as to say that Paul was not beheaded for the gospel. Paul was beheaded for the implications of the gospel. And the implications of the gospel are this, that all fall short of the glory of God and all are welcomed into the kingdom. No matter who you are, where you come from, what your background is, Paul says we have to be unified. Why? Because in Christ and in his church, God is solving that disconnection problem. First Corinthians, Paul would say it this way. All of you agree that there be no division among you, united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Ephesians 4, Paul says this. He says, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And immediately he moves on to unity. If we understand the gospel, that's Ephesians 1 through 3, the good news about Jesus, we must walk together in unity, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Uh, this, this whole reconnection with one another, discovering connection with one another, I think is so reflected in Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's recorded in John chapter 17. And it's the only time in the New Testament where we know for sure that Jesus prayed for you and for me. The only time. Elsewhere, he's praying for God's kingdom to come. Elsewhere, he's praying for his disciples. But right here, watch what Jesus prays. He says, I do not ask for these only. He's praying to his heavenly father now, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's you. Turn to your neighbor, say it. Say, that's you. He's praying for you. Those who would believe in me through their word. That's us. That's you and me. And what does he pray for us? He prays that they will all be, say this word with me, one, just as you, uh, Father, are in me and I in you, that you may also, also may be in us. The results, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He goes on. He says, the glory that you have given me, I've given to them that they may be, say that word with me, one, even as we are, one, there you go, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So what is Jesus praying for us? That we may be one. It's not a complicated answer. This is what Jesus wants for you and me. Why? So that they would know that you loved them even as you loved me. <coughs> for those of us who God has called as his disciples, for those of us who are just exploring faith and considering uh, following Jesus and following in his footsteps, this is the first posture that we take on ourselves, the first practice that we engage in in every day of life is discovering a life connected to God and connected to others. Now, I told you why we use that word discovering, because this is an all-the-time thing. You never finish with this. But I want to tell you why those two things, connection to God and connection to others, are in that very same statement. It's because they're inextricably bound. You can't have one and not the other. You can't connect to God and disconnect from other people. It doesn't work that way. That's a DNC, does not compute. Why? Because in the life of Jesus, the Pharisees once asked him, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Are they asking for singular or plural here? Singular. It's not complicated. Say it with me. One, two, three. 
Singular. They're asking for one. What's the greatest commandment? Of the hundreds of commandments that are in the Mosaic law, what's the most important one? They're trying to trap him. Watch what Jesus does. Is he going to get trapped? Never does. Ready? He says, mm, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. Conversation's over. That's it. It's the greatest commandment. And the Pharisees should have said, religious leaders, okay, great. Got it. You got it right, dude. And that's what we would have expected. We would have expected the conversation to end there. The conversation does not end there. Watch what Jesus says. He says, and a second is like it. So they're asking for how many commandments. And Jesus gives them. Why? Because they're so inextricably bound. These two commandments are always together. If you see somebody obeying one and disobeying the other, they're not obeying the first. If you see somebody obeying the second and disobeying the first, they're really not obeying the second. They're both together, and here's the second one. You shall love your what? Neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus' disciple John would go on in his letter to the church. He would say it this way. He says, we love because he first loved us. We're connected to God, reconciled to him, rediscovering what it means to live a life connected to him. He loved us, therefore we love others. We're connected to others inside the body and outside the body. We love because he first loved us. Now watch what he says. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a what? Say that word. Liar. That sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? But this is not a harsh word for John. It's just a neutral statement of fact for him. If you say the light is red and it's really green, that's not true. If you say you love God and hate your brother, those aren't true. Those those two things don't exist together. He goes on. He says, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. What is John saying? What is Jesus saying? saying that you cannot simultaneously connect with God and disconnect from others. It doesn't work. Disciples, Talmudim, followers of Jesus, are always discovering what it means to live connected to God and live connected to others. Now, am I saying that you should sacrifice your desires, your needs, your wants, your rights, that you should sacrifice your time and your money in order to serve other people, come alongside other people, support other people? Of course I am. Why? Because that's what Jesus said. And that's what he did. And we don't just learn from the rabbi as his students, we become the rabbi as his Talmudim. Discovering a life connected to God and connected to others. We'll say it this way. Connection to God fuels connection to others. When we become connected to God, when we're experiencing his grace and love, it always happens that we extend his grace and love to others, that we reach out to somebody else, that we find someone else in the room that's maybe not like us. An easy task in a room like this, by the way. <laughs> I just, I'm curious. We take the map from what was disconnected at Babel. We take the map of what was reconnected at Pentecost. What if we took our map here at Bayview Glen Church? 
I feel like we'd have more ethnicities than either of those, but that's beside the point. The point is, you want to learn how to be connected to God and connected to others, especially others who are not like you, different age, ethnicity, uh, race, different uh, place in life, different socioeconomic level. Welcome to an awesome place to do that. I'm not, I, I could just make you look around at your neighbor and say, you're not like me, I, I, but we don't want to do that, all right? But they aren't. They aren't. You got somebody in your row that ain't like you if you're here at Bayview Glen Church this morning. And that connection that we have with God, reconnecting with him, fuels our connection to those other people as we sacrifice, serve, and put others' needs before our own. And watch this. This is the greatest sermon point you're ever going to hear in your life. Ready? And vice versa. I worked very long on this. Thank you. Why? When we connect to God, he pours his grace out on us. Inevitably, consequently, we pour our grace and love out onto other people. Now, when we serve somebody else, when we love somebody else, especially when we bridge a gap between us and somebody else, we become like Jesus who bridged the greatest gap ever. Who did not come to be served but to serve right? We walk in his footsteps. We become like the rabbi when we connect to one another. And we get up here and talk about all the time. We talk about serve teams here at Bayview Glen where you put somebody else's needs above your own. We talk about life groups where you discover connection with people who aren't like you. We're not doing that for our health. We're not doing that because, you know, we need you as a volunteer. We're certainly not asking you to join a serve team so that or because God needs you. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can just sell a couple of them. He doesn't need you, you know? What we're doing is we're opening doors of opportunity here at Bayview Glen because it's our job, it's our calling to edify and to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and give you opportunities to walk in the footsteps of Jesus and to become a servant of people who may be not like you. People of a different age, race, ethnicity, junior high students, they're different everything. Kids, seniors, finding somebody who is not like you. And that connection to God fuels connection to others. And that connection to others fuels your connection with God. A disciple, Talmudim, a follower of Jesus, is always discovering a life connected to God and others. This is what it means to be the people of God, his followers in 21st century Toronto. So here's my question, and we'll wrap it up with this. What's your next step? What's your next step? I can't tell you what your next step is. Only you can decide what your next step is. What's God leading you to do? Are there ways in which you can resituate your life habits and patterns to step through those doors that God has opened for you to reconnect to him? Prayer, not as a chore, but as an opportunity to talk to God. Worship, not as a Sunday obligation to do something before brunch, but, but as an opportunity to connect to God. Communion, not because it's just something we do here once a month, but it's a reminder that I am connected with Him. Reading your Bible, listening to preaching, what is it that you can do to take on one of those po that posture and practice and put that into your normal life habits and rhythms? What is it that you need to do to reconnect to others? Can I give you a hint, married people? 
Start with your spouse. Start with your spouse. Finding ways to serve your spouse. Finding ways to serve your spouse in a way that's meaningful to them. I tell myself all the time, I'm serving Amy when I make steaks for her. That's ridiculous. Who am I serving? Me. Also, I'm serving steak. (laughs) That's stupid. That's stupid. I shouldn't have said that. I'll fix it in the third service. But find a way to put yourself second and put your spouse's needs first. Find a way to put yourself second, put your kids' needs first. Find a way to put yourself second, put your neighbor's needs first. You will have wonderful opportunities to do that when it starts to dump snow. Right? Shovel that stuff off their driveway. Find a way to put yourself second and put an older person's needs first. Find a way to put yourself second. Put somebody who doesn't necessarily speak the language as well as you. Put their needs first and rediscover what it means to be connected to others. Why? Because this is the good news about Jesus. He came to inaugurate a kingdom in which we can be connected to God and connected to others. And that's what his disciples do, is we're always discovering for the rest of the day today and first thing tomorrow when that alarm goes off, what it means to live connected to God and others. So what's your next step? I would invite you to invite God to reveal that to you. Let's pray together as we close. God, you are good and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We are grateful for your spirit's presence here with us. We are grateful that you sent your son Jesus and he left your spirit to undo the consequences of sin consequence of disconnection from you, the consequence of disconnection from one another. And if and when we learn to live as your disciples, your Talmudim, becoming like you, those things get unraveled in our lives. Those things get unraveled in our world. The consequences of sin get rolled back and we see the world as you originally designed it. Teach us, O God, to be a church that engages in these postures and practices to become more like you so that our city is transformed and that the world is changed. In the name of Christ, the people of God together said, amen.